Welcome to On the Record with Tiffany. There are heroes throughout San Antonio, men and women that go the extra mile to make lives better. During the next hour, you'll be inspired as we introduce you to these unsung heroes. And now here's your host, Tiffany Jones-Smith. And we're back with another episode of On the Record with Tiffany, and I have the pleasure of having the Honorable Joe Gonzalez here to talk to us about what's going on with the district attorney's office and all the new work that they're doing amid this pandemic. How are you doing, Mr. Gonzalez, Honorable Mr. Gonzalez? <laughs> good, good afternoon. Happy New Year. I Same hope to you. I hope you had a nice holiday season as, as well as you could have under the, these circumstances. That's right. You you look great. Well, thank and, you. And you guys have been doing some some uh, amazing work considering what we're what we're dealing with in terms of I mean, you've had <laughs> you took this job in 2019 with no idea that we were going to hit that we were going to experience a pandemic. An insurrection. <laughs> um, the the worst healthcare epidemics exposed, along with the pandemic, civil unrest. Like it's been a pretty unprecedented. Any one of those things would be kind of a game changer for a district attorney. <laughs> you know, it has been quite uh, a challenge. You're right. So tell us how how COVID-19 has impacted you doing your work and the efficacy of your of of your office. Okay. Well, let me begin by by saying you're right. When I ran for this office, uh, I ex- expected to to handle the, the typical responsibilities of a district attorney in a large uh, mm-hmm. uh, metropolitan county. Uh, you know, we, we run an office of over 500 employees, and I expected to deal with the typical administrative uh, headaches that you deal with uh, in an office this large. But never in my wildest dreams did I ever imagine having to deal with a um, worldwide pandemic and how it was going to affect what we do in this county. And it has certainly had a profound in fact, impact on the criminal justice system in Bear County. But I will tell you that we've done, I believe, a really good job at trying to continue to move the wheels of justice to try and do the best we can under the circumstances. One of the first things I did is recognize back in March of, of uh, 2020, almost a year now, uh, that mm-hmm. this was coming. And so what I did is go to a workforce uh, of uh, 20% in person and 80% work from home. Uh, fortunately, most of our employees have laptops that they could have taken uh, home with them and continue to review cases, continue to have Zoom hearings where we have, um, we can conduct business. But, uh, but the large part of what we normally do uh, didn't occur because, again, we were trying to keep people from contracting COVID. We were trying to keep uh, um the amount of people uh, that were in our buildings to a minimum. So it has had uh, an impact on uh, our daily operations. But remember, we're only a, a, a part of this whole cog. Uh, along with us is law enforcement uh, and the courts. That is to say, the clerks, the bailiffs, the judges themselves, everybody that works together to move these cases along, they've all been impacted by COVID. And so we have all been trying to work together at doing the best we can under these circumstances. You know, typically in any one year, uh, we handle 60,000 cases per year. That's been no different this year. We continue to to have to, to handle those kinds of cases. Uh, there's been somewhat of a, a reduction uh, just because of the 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 activity on the street, as it were, uh, mm-hmm. may have been reduced, especially during those times when we were uh, locked down, uh, when there wasn't a lot of activity. But we continue to, to work these cases. Uh, one of the things that we continue to have to do is run the magistrate's office. When someone commits a crime uh, and an officer makes a decision to make an arrest, 
he's got to take that person in, uh, to the magistrate's office. And that, that uh, division has to be manned by a prosecutor to review those cases, to determine if there's probable cause to charge that person with a crime. So we've had to continue to operate even under COVID. We've had prosecutors uh, work. Um, we have a 24 hour magistration system. So a lot of times when we're all asleep um, or, or enjoying our family all the weekends, we have a prosecutor continually working over there, uh, processing these cases. We've done it at a, uh, with social distancing. Everybody in my office wears masks. Uh, we sanitize our hands. We do everything that we have to, but we have to continue to operate uh, that division. Other divisions like the Family Justice Center that handles the protective orders. Again, what happened during COVID is that we knew that a lot of the the victims of domestic violence were having to shelter in place with their abusers. Uh, and mm-hmm. we knew that uh, at some point they're going to have to come out of the shadows and, and file cases against their abusers. Again, we have uh, continued to run that office. Uh, we now have an online system where someone can actually apply for a protective order online. Uh, uh, that has helped uh, alleviate uh, those issues for the victims <clears throat> that are seeking protective orders, but it's ballooned the amount of work that we have. Uh, so, and there are other divisions, like for example, we have a section of scanners when when a police report is, is, is prepared, it's, it's until recently was all handwritten. So we had to have people scan those into, into our systems so they can be uploaded and then uh, reviewed ultimately by uh, lawyers uh, uh, that are preparing for trial. So all that has been occurring this whole time. One of the, uh, the most frustrating things, again, because of COVID, is the reality that we do not have jury trials. We haven't had jury trials since last uh, March or April uh, a year ago. And uh, the administration- So what does that mean for- That means that the, the cases are, are stagnating because mm-hmm. if you are uh, accused of a crime and you insist um, on your day in court, if you believe uh, that, uh, uh, that you uh, wanna go to trial, if someone's accusing you of crime and you obviously have a constitutional rights, right to fight that case and you want to go to trial, then you have to wait until uh, we have jury trials or people coming from the community to be impaneled so that we can select people to sit on a jury trial. Because most cases, um, we would have to agree to um, to waive a jury and have that case uh, uh, decided by a judge. Um, and so in those circumstances where we need a, a jury panel and people are not coming into the community, we can't, we can't um, select a jury because we don't have a, a pool of, of juror, mm-hmm. potential jurors. So that's been the case for almost a year now. Um, the, the, um, What's the fix for that? If, if, what is the, how do you address that if we continue on for another six months? Well, year that, where we can't. That's the problem. I, I don't know if you have um, been made aware, but from time to time, the administrative judge will report to the community. Uh, mm-hmm. There have been several reports where Judge Ron Hale has said he's not going to uh, expose the the, uh, the community. He's not going to expose potential jurors to COVID. Uh, oh, right. Yes. The, uh, um, the positivity rate. Um, mm-hmm. is so low that he feels comfortable in asking potential jurors to come uh, downtown. So what happens, to answer your question, Tiffany, is that mm-hmm. those cases continue to build up. We now have a backlog of cases that are waiting uh, trial. For example, just uh, on the in-custody side, the people that are waiting to go to trial uh, uh, from March of last year to now, there are some um, 1,600 people that have, that have are sitting in the Mayor County Jail uh, awaiting to go to, uh, to trial. And, um, you know, obviously that's, that's an issue that we're all going to have to uh, resolve at some point. And that's just those people that are, that are sitting in jail. There's a lot more people that are out on bond that, again, are waiting for their day in court. So until and unless we can get to a point where we can start moving these cases, they're going to continue to, to build up. Are there... 
some options on how you can can um, move those cases? Are y'all are there things you're trying to put forward that maybe haven't uh, gotten the traction you wanted? Sure. Well, uh, th- there are some. We certainly uh, should be. And we have been trying to think outside the box. And one of those is, as I've mentioned before, if we think a case is appropriate for waiving uh, a jury trial, we can certainly uh, uh, approach uh, the defense attorney who represents the accused and ask if this is something that that his or her client may uh, be willing to agree to waive a jury and have the case decided by the judge. We've actually done that on a couple of uh, cases already. We've had a, a a number of cases that, for example, have been um, lit, uh, heard by some of our domestic violence courts judges, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, they can certainly make the decision about whether or not uh, a defendant is guilty of a crime. So in that way, we might be able to move those cases. Um, <clears throat> again, I've, I've instructed uh, our staff to look at, at those cases, even the felon cases, where we believe it would be appropriate to to try the case in front of a judge. Uh, keeping in mind that there are some cases that are, are not um, readily susceptible to that. Some cases that we that uh, we believe should be decided by a jury of 12. But in those cases, let's say minor uh, uh, offenses, property crimes, maybe drug offenses where you don't have a, a, a victim of crime, um, mm-hmm. uh, those may be uh, right for those kinds of situations. Could technology be used to to uh, to conduct, uh, you know, to assemble a, a panel of twelve, like they're doing with with Congress and with with uh, the representatives? Well, let me let me talk a little bit about about the challenges that technology uh, would present when talking about a trial situation. Um, if if you're if you're talking about a typical uh, trial. Uh, let's say it's a drug case that I mentioned. One of the things that uh, uh, a state's witness would have to do would be to bring the the substance, the controlled substance to court. Uh, mm-hmm. And it has to be, in order to be introduced, it has to be uh, labeled. Uh, and there are certain steps before it's admitted into evidence. Uh, for example, the, the witness would have to identify the drug. Uh, and then that, that piece of evidence then is presented to a judge. So it presents... Uh, challenges if people are sitting at different locations. Uh, not too long ago, we had a hearing in front of one of our da- state district judges where the issue was the identification of the defendant. Mm-hmm. The defendant was sitting at the Bear County Jail. Uh, the judge was in the courtroom. The prosecutor was in another location. And so we had to uh, uh, manipulate that see- proceeding to be able to to, um, uh, for example, uh, offer the evidence. Uh, there was an issue about a, uh, this, this individual had a prior criminal history. So, so the, the state's witness had to fingerprint that individual. He had to go down to the, to the Bear County Jail, fingerprint that individual, uh, come back and, and, and testify that that was the same individual. Uh, the, the, the defense attorney raised an interesting point when our uh, fingerprint examiner went down there to do it, the defendant had a mask on. And so the defense attorney asked, well, how do you know that my client is the same person that you fingerprinted earlier? This had happened the, the day before. Uh, fortunately, our state's witness was uh, quick enough to respond, well, I heard his voice. Uh, I recognize uh, his physical features other than his, his, uh, the area where he's got his mask. He was able to give sufficient enough description when the judge mm-hmm. accepted the identification but that's the challenge that it posed because they were different parts of the trial, different people or, or players in, in the, the trial were at different locations. Another problem would be, for example, if we ever went to a jury trial uh, via Zoom, those are other challenges. For example, uh, when, when we pick a jury, uh, we ask the, the jury that's deliberating not to uh, engage in independent uh, investigations, not, not to look at other sources for information. Um, so most jurors can't even can't even take notes when they're sitting listening to a trial. So can you imagine a juror sitting at home? I've got the laptop here and I'm listening to the trial. What's to prevent that juror from having another computer 
where then they engage in some research on their own to go on Google or some other uh, platform to do the research about whatever they're listening to, but to prevent somebody else from from uh, listening to the trial and trying to feed that information to the potential juror. You see how that would create create problems? Well, another problem would be uh, the ability to actually tape people too in, in the state of uh, in the state of Texas. So, as long as one party knows that they're doing that, uh, somebody uh, outside of that juror could could potentially be sitting on the other side of the camera doing doing exactly that. Right. You know, so so yeah, you you pose a lot of <laughs> interesting. Yeah, oh man. Talk about having to think through some weighty issues. So I just want to know, what does this mean for, for victims? You know, when the, we talked a little, we talked about the person who's being accused who's waiting, but the victim is waiting too. So what, what is this, what does that mean for, for victims and how how are y'all handling that? Well, that that is a, a a real concern for me because we want to make sure that our victims of crime have some justice, right? And and we don't want them to have to work. I'm sorry, we don't want them to have to wait forever. So what we're trying to do is keep in contact with our victims. We're, we're trying to reach out to them and ask them to please be patient. That we're all in this boat together to try and get back to normal. Uh, but we, our hope is that they don't lose interest. Our hope is that they don't move away and decide, you know what, I've waited too long. You all waited too long. I'm, I'm not coming to court because that would be a travesty uh, of justice. Let's, let's say, for example, because we mentioned it before, let's say a victim of domestic violence. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's say uh, the wife or the girlfriend or whoever uh, is a, a victim and she's waiting for, uh, to go to court and then loses interest or moves away and says, you know what, I'm just not interested in doing it. And by doing that, this this perpetrator may commit another uh, act on somebody else down the road. We don't want that to happen. So, so it is it is a concern of ours. It is a challenge for us. And one of the things we're trying to do is is again keep in contact with our victims of crime and ask them to to please be patient with us. Please hold on. And and uh, you know, we're going to get back to normal one day. We we hope that it's sooner rather than later. But but again, uh, we're 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 all in the same situation. The judges are frustrated. Uh, mm-hmm. The defense lawyers with their clients are frustrated, and certainly we are because we want to bring justice to our victims. So, well, I know you want to bring justice to your victims, and I know we just looking at what you've been doing in terms of of uh, another major problem that we have right now with the civil unrest. We've seen civil rights like the last time we talked, we were it was right after George Floyd. I think we talked just a few weeks after that, and uh, you know it was it was a poignant moment and conversation because uh, you went through law school at a time when when uh, civil rights were really important. So a lot of your career and and anyone can see the way that you've conducted yourself has been about achieving equity and giving everyone a fair shot. So as you've, since you've seen what's happened after that, what, what were your thoughts? Cause I see you, you, you are a man of action. So you, you went out and made some things happen, not just <laughs> you, you saw this, and then tell everybody what you created. Okay. Well, uh, and thank you for that uh, background. I'll tell you some of your listeners who maybe didn't hear the first time. Um, mm-hmm. While I've been uh, the district attorney for two years, I have been a lawyer for 32 years, for over 32 mm-hmm. years. And I certainly have seen my my share of inequity. Um, and I, I'm here to tell you, if you haven't heard it from other sources, we do have institutional racism in, in every facet of life. Uh, not only education in professional areas, but in law enforcement, the courts as well. And so I, I certainly have seen it. I, I saw it as a defense lawyer. I've seen it as a prosecutor. 
Uh, and so the, the sooner we recognize that we have institutional racism, the sooner that we recognize that we have, uh, in some uh, areas, implicit bias, uh, then the sooner we can do something about it. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things I sought to do, even before George Floyd, uh, was to try to, to handle those cases where, where people um, had uh, been involved in situations where there was a claim of excessive force on part of mm-hmm. law enforcement or maybe an officer involved shooting. Uh, we want to make sure that we do everything we can uh, to bring justice uh, to those situations. One of the biggest uh, arguments that I heard in the community um, after George Floyd was this this notion that uh, how can prosecutors possibly be fair and unbiased when they have such a close relationship with officers? When you think about it, with with what we do day in and day out, we rely on law enforcement officers to make cases for us, right? There are witnesses. When we have a typical drug case, we have a typical, whatever it is, criminal trespass, marijuana, <clears throat> we ask the officers to come to court to testify on, on the part of the state of Texas. So how can we ask them to do that and at the same time be looking at potentially charging them with a crime? That makes a lot of sense to me. So what I did is requested funding for and received, uh, and, and I'm forever indebted uh, to the commissioner's court for, for giving us the funding to create an independent division uh, that we have called the Civil Rights Division. That unit is, is, uh, is uh, now fully staffed. We just full staffed it uh, about two weeks ago. Has two prosecutors, an uh, investigator, and a victim's advocate. I'll tell you, I'm, I'm most proud of, of, of the people that have stepped up and volunteered to be part of that unit. It's led by Daryl Harris, uh, who is a veteran prosecutor, um, and he actually was an, uh, a chief in one of our divisions. Um, he volunteered to step up and, and take over this division to lead it because this is something that he believes in um, and uh, has done an incredible uh, uh, job so far. In just uh, 30 days that we've been in operation, uh, he's already made uh, a handful of crime scenes. That's one of the things that we're doing different that, that hadn't been done before. And again, in the 30 plus years that I've been uh, a lawyer, and that's all I've ever handled is criminal work, either as a, as a prosecutor or defense attorney. I've never heard of prosecutors in, in this county going to crime scenes. We now do that. This division, when it's involving officer-involved shootings, um, which are kind of a unique type of case to begin with, anytime an officer uh, fires his weapon, that results in the serious bodily injury or death of anyone, uh, then uh, if law enforcement notifies us, we will dispatch our unit to make the crime scene. Now, not to to conduct an independent parallel investigation because that's law enforcement's job, but to monitor the case so that we know when a case occurs and we will uh, monitor uh, the progress uh, and then depending on how, how long it's been, we'll, we may reach out to law enforcement and, say, and ask them, uh, where are you on this case? When can we expect it in our office? Can we help you uh, with painting something, an autopsy report? Are you looking to get a hold of witness A or, or, or family member B? That kind of thing. Uh, so that's one of the, the, the new ways uh, that we are handling uh, these kinds of cases. Uh, we have gotten the cooperation of both uh, the San Antonio Police Department and Bear County Sheriff's Office, uh, both the sheriff and Chief McManus have been very good about notifying us when they have these kinds of shootings. We have 35 or so uh, uh, law enforcement agencies in, in the Bear County area. So we're reaching out to the smaller agencies. We just had a, a situation, I'm sure you're, you, you're well aware of now, the Balcones Heights incident uh, that involved that, that uh, fortunate, unfortunate shooting of, of the sergeant who I hear is doing better now, uh, we were dispatched to that, uh, to that crime scene. Uh, and so we're uh, in that way trying to improve the way these, these uh, sorts of cases uh, are handled. Another way that we're, we're uh, uh, handling these cases differently is we're, when we get a case into our office that is filed by law enforcement, we're going to review um, these cases fully 
and not get involved in the administrative side. Because what happened before I even got to, to office is um, in, a, in the previous administration, whenever a, a case was filed in, our, in this office, a letter was sent out or a notification releasing the officer back uh, to duty. We, we don't get involved in that administrative process. We're, we're not going to have anything to do with making a decision about whether or not the officer should go back to work. That's strictly something for the agency to, to make a decision on. What we're going to do is we're going to ensure that we have every piece of evidence, every piece of paper, every uh, piece of information before making a decision uh, to present it to the grand jury. And by the way, that's another way that we're changing the way we're do doing business is we're going to take everything that we have and present it to a grand jury for them to make the ultimate decision about whether uh, to indict the officer when there's an allegation uh, that he committed a crime. And then the last uh, way we're going, we're handling these cases is in the event under the, the flag of transparency, in the event that a, a case results in a no bill, in other words, a grand jury decides not to indict that officer, we're going to disseminate a letter to the general public and we will put it on our website uh, uh, so that the general public can review uh, the, the facts of that case. Uh, we, we're prohibited from talking about what happens in a grand jury proceeding by very nature, they're confidential. But in that letter, we're going to explain uh, the facts of the case so that the general, the, uh, the, the public, as well as the family, has a, a general idea of why perhaps a grand jury uh, might have decided to no bill a case. So those are the kinds of examples of how we're doing uh, uh, or handling these kinds of cases differently than before. That's a, a very... Um innovative way to handle cases having a having an actual uh attorney show up and just assist with the the crime scene because one of the things we talked about last time was uh one of the best examples of of law enforcement and uh, district attorney's offices and other helping agencies working together to make uh, make the public safer and 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 fuel trust from the public. And Camden, New Jersey, was was uh, the example that we we talked about, <clears throat> um, and that was at the height of of people t people saying defund the police. It was the big defund the police uh, tagline, <laughs> I would say. Uh, but what actually happened in Camden, New Jersey is that you had funding flowing in to help the police in the sense that it, there are so many mental health uh, cases that you all are dispatched, that the police officers are dispatched to, and then subsequently end up on your desk <laughs> because there's not there there hasn't historically been a a way to deal with that you you're sending someone who is trained with one set of values to go and handle a mental health case and that requires another set of skills that are not that these two don't match <laughs> so um I, I liked that you have the civil rights division because that that kind of working together is exactly what needs to happen for law enforcement to be effective and for the district attorney's office to be effective, for everybody to come out with and for the the victim and the accused to to receive what they need to receive. So everybody comes out with the best possible outcome. You know, one of the, the biggest challenges, uh, Tiffany, that I've encountered uh, during uh, this whole incident uh, post George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement is the the uh, misconception that people have 
that prosecutors and uh, and cops, police are one and the same. We are not one and the same. Right. Um, different uh, offices, different right. things are happening. <laughs> right. I, I don't I don't have any control over how uh, officers investigate or what they do right. when they show up to scene. I can't order uh, SAPD or Bear County Sheriff to make the an arrest. Likewise, they can't order me or, uh, or direct me whether to accept a case or not. We have to make decisions mm-hmm. up here as lawyers. I say up here, uh, uh, away from the street is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we have to review a case like a lawyer reviews uh, anything to determine whether or not a crime occurred. Which uh, is and- very different. That standard is different from on the street as a police officer. Can you explain a little bit to our listeners? Because I, I think there's a disconnect in what what the average person understands about the burden of proof in a court of law. <laughs> That's different. Sure. And, and most times when officers uh, are dis- dispatched to a crime scene, uh, they may find uh, a victim of crime, again, uh, domestic violence, Maybe you have a, a murder case where you have a dead body. Maybe you have um, a sexual assault case. Um, and uh, oftentimes uh, officers are given information and they develop suspects. So they, they uh, and for example, in a situation where they may have the suspect in custody, they have to make a decision about whether or not there is probable cause to believe that a crime occurred. Probable cause to believe that that, that person they have in custody committed the sexual assault, the mm-hmm. murder, the, the robbery, whatever it is that they're dealing with, then they may make the arrest at that point, then they bring that person to the magistrate's office. Our prosecutor reviews a case again th- to determine whether it's probable cause to believe that person committed the crime. And then later when we get the case in our office, we have to look at those cases with an eye toward whether or not we can prove beyond a reasonable doubt because that's the, the mm-hmm. standard in Texas as in most uh, areas in this country is can you prove, in fact, I think in all jurisdictions in this country, mm-hmm. can you prove mm-hmm. beyond a reasonable doubt that this person committed a crime? And so ultimately that's what we have to look at. And a lot of times it's not till the dust settles and mm-hmm. until we talk to witnesses in preparation for trial and to review, we review the physical and uh, ballistics, uh, autopsy report, uh, witness statements, if there are any uh, DNA then we make the decision whether or not we can go forward. Uh, and often, t- sometimes, uh, if if we don't have sufficient evidence, then we may make a decision to uh, to have to either dismiss uh, a case or or offer a what's called a plea bargain, where we mm-hmm. might not had we had a strong enough case. So you're right; there are two different standards, and it's not until we start preparing for trial that we learn whether or not we can. We, we have enough evidence to uh, obtain a conviction. And that, you know, that brings me to that Camden, New Jersey uh, example. The, the Camden, New Jersey had the same problem that we saw all over, you know, highlighted in, in different places in the United States that, that there was definitely a, a bias among some of the police officers against against uh black and brown people and so they made a they decided to uh to reimagine what what policing would look like and what the um district attorney's office would do and what you know what each one of the the uh governing bodies and authorities would would do and when they did we saw a big change in how the public related to police officers. And therefore, when officers showed up to a scene or were dispatched to a scene, they had already built a relationship with that community. And so instead of showing up to a scene and everybody's afraid to say anything, there was already, there's trust there. So now we're years into this uh, and we see that that the very things that you're doing right now, years from now, and as we build trust with, with our people, 
on the law enforcement side and on the district attorney's side, because you guys working with them that what in this manner is going to be, it's a huge game changer for, for our city and for how we communicate with uh, the disenfranchised in our community. You know, and, and you bring up that interesting, that so that situation in Camden was unique in the sense that a decision was made that that, uh, that department was so uh, troubled and, and had so many problems that they they disbanded that entire department and they rebuilt it from scratch. One of the things that they learned was that they needed to build a component of community policing, which is what mm-hmm. you're talking about, mm-hmm. where where they actually had police uh, policemen go into the, the neighborhoods uh, and, and and getting to know the community, getting Absolutely. to know the community. Right. I mean, they they didn't defund the police they reimagined them and you you know uh, messaging is very important it's important for both sides it's important to have 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 the police officers that are doing all the things they should be doing uh treated like like they're the heroes that they are and it's important to take the guys that and ladies that should not be there and and realize that, or need to be retrained and realize that. You know, that, that phrase is, is, is kind of one of these uh, emotional phrases where it can be a gotcha moment because I have been asked uh, point blank, are you for or against defunding the police? And, and I would say, whoa, 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 it's not that easy. It's, it, yeah, it, it's it, not, it's not you're, easy. You're talking about <laughs> disbanding an entire police department, defunding them, I'm not a proponent of that. Can you imagine again? Remember what I mentioned ago, uh, a minute ago. What if you didn't have enough police to to cover an investigation of a of a sexual assault or a murder? Uh, we need police. Uh, yeah, you have to have. We need to keep our community safe. If you're talking when you talk, you refer to defunding is uh, as you say reimagining, redirecting resources to areas like mental health. Then I'm all for that. But we and adding adding we we really need to be adding resources for areas like mental health. It's not that funding needs to be taken away. We need to we need to add funding for neighborhoods and communities that that need that mental health training and that need those mental health professionals to show up and and help in the areas that they need help. It's not not a uh, which is a great idea. Uh that we would ha- that we would work together and not have so many uh, authority figures that are compartmentalized. One group is here, one group is there. That never never do the the twine meet. You know, you don't want that. You want everybody to be working together for the good of the community, not not uh, in separate silos. So I I love that. I love the the civil rights division because. That sounds like, you know, your your first steps in this are unifying. They're unifying yeah, the things, steps. Thank you for saying that, Tiffany. And and, and it is uh, something that we believe that that is going to be beneficial to the community at large, but also to the family members uh, uh, that are left behind in a shooting situation. And one of the mm-hmm. the, the uh, again the differences in the way we approach these cases from before is the fact that our, our division is going to try and reach out to those family members as soon as possible to say, we're here. Uh, we're here to, to, to make contact with you as soon as we can to let you know the progress of the case. We will let you know when we get the case in our office. Again, because one of the biggest criticisms of one of the cases everybody now is well aware of is that the family was not notified uh, of any decision the DA's office made until months, maybe even years later. Uh, hopefully by, by having our division reach out to those family members, uh, that'll kind of help with the healing process. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's one of the things that we hope to do with this new division. There's better communication. Is, and you, yes. can never, you, you can never have too much communication. Better communication is, is, communication is key, especially when, when uh, you're dealing with, with loved ones and the most precious commodities that we have, people need to hear from us. Yeah. You know, they need to hear from they need to hear from from uh, uh, those trusted authority figures. 
uh, I want to ask you about, like I was looking at, at uh, how you're doing this. I guess that West Point background is, is, uh, <laughs> I, I have a West Pointer in the family. My, my, uh, uh, um, I was referred to as my younger sister. My little cousin is, she's my cousin that, that was like raised in and out of our house and my grandmother's house. And she's a West Pointer. So I know the, the, <laughs> the, the they get down to the nitty gritty, right? Real granular and get things done, you know? <laughs> Let's make sure our viewers know we're talking about the the leader in the civil rights division, not me. That was the one I went to West Point. <laughs> That's right. That's right. We're talking about Daryl. We're talking about you, Daryl. You got to come on the show. We're talking about you. <laughs> but uh, wow, I, I'm impressed with what you all have been able to accomplish because this has only been around since since October 2020. Well, that's when we fought, we had the funding. That's when you we got, got the funding. It took it took us over the holidays to interview, and you know the the, the credible thing is. Uh, so we publicized uh, for these positions um, and we accepted applications and we interviewed people from far and wide, people outside the county. And, and who would have thunk that the best person was someone that I, that I had in my own backyard, someone that was ideal to lead this unit, someone that stepped up uh, and said, I'm your man. I'm willing to do what, whatever it takes. And he's done an incredible job. And so we're real happy to have him lead this division. And, and like I said, and it's like you say, I mean, these, these are these are very um, emotionally packed situations. Someone has either been seriously injured or killed um, and nothing that you say is going to bring that person back and nothing that you 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 say is going to make the family feel better, except to know that we're going to try and do everything we can to do the right thing, that we're going to try and bring justice to that family. And, and it's it's always helpful when people see uh, a diverse group that's actually doing this and, and they're not, you know, it can definitely feel like like you're being singled out when you don't see anybody that looks like you in leadership. So I, I like the fact that we have a civil rights division with people of color in it because often what what I see like like within my my day job you know I have that that other hat from Texas Kidney Foundation that I wear uh I can't tell you how many diversity committees <laughs> I've been asked to uh hey come over and talk to this diversity committee and you get there and it's like the only diversity is that there are some women on the committee <laughs> that's it there are there are no people of color there and <laughs> you're just like well how are you making decisions about what is happening in communities that are are you know black and brown and uh asian and and you don't have anybody representative of any of these groups in uh, on the committee that's making the decisions so that you know the you, your commitment to this is evidenced by how you set the group up from the beginning well thank you for that saying that and let me mention just in case your viewers don't know what, what you might know so we have four members in that community i wanted to reflect the the, the racial makeup of bear county so we have mm -hmm. The lead prosecutor is African-American. Uh, we have uh, a white American who's the third chair prosecutor. We have a Hispanic American who's the investigator and a Hispanic American who's the paralegal or uh, victim's advocate. Uh, so I, I wanted to, to tr be as diverse as possible and, and yet um, you know, put the people in there that uh, were qualified to, to do that job. You so, don't get more qualified than West Point. <laughs> you know, I mean, you can't, uh, when you take a look at the, at the body of, of, uh, work and, and achievement of the, the group of all four of them, then, uh, one, it makes you proud to be a San Antonian that, that we have this, that, that we put something together like this. And then two, 
uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what what they're going to do because no with all those different perspectives the the beauty in having people from so many different backgrounds is that each one comes to the table with a very different perspective and very different experiences and that that in and of itself helps you to create the best the best outcome the best system think about different roads and paths that that can be taken for our community that i i just love that because um we've we've got to do something do better than we've been doing for the last four years the division that we see amongst people uh is sad because that's not who we are as Americans. And I feel like San Antonio is once again stepping up to show what can be done within the, the footprint of what we of of our our laws and, and opportunities. What can we do? What can we do to serve the public? Because the, we've got to get the focus back onto the fact that these are public servants. And if 10% of the people are doing wrong, that means 90% are doing the right thing. So let's appeal to the 90%, <laughs> you know? It's like, uh, I'm very thankful to you for what you're, you're doing with the, the Civil Rights Division. Uh, I wanted to take the time to talk about uh, your proposed site and release expansion. Can you tell us about how that's been going? Sure. Well, first of all, uh, we in now about a year and a half of having the site and release um, uh, program in our office, it, it has resulted in a huge success. And I measure success. But first, let me say this again to our viewers that may not understand what site and release is about. Whenever mm -hmm. an officer encounters someone on the, on the street, whether it's a traffic stop or walking up to an individual uh, and uh, the person um, may have committed the crime of, let's say, possession of misdemeanor marijuana. He's got the ability to arrest that person and, and process them, take them into custody, book them the whole nine yards. Sometimes it takes an entire shift. And so the, the, the question is, is that the best use of resources when you have just a certain amount of, of, of members of of law enforcement, right? You only have so, so many police officers mm -hmm. per, per um, city or county. Um, and then you have a certain amount of prosecutors that have to review those cases. Is it the best use of our money? Is it the best use of our resources to spend all that time arresting someone for a misdemeanor amount of marijuana or, mm -hmm. or some other uh, nonviolent offense? So site and release allows the officer to make, to have the discretion to, instead of arresting that person, give that person a citation have them appear later uh, to either conduct some community service or do some kind of mm -hmm. program, anger management or uh, drug awareness or whatever the issue mm -hmm. is. Uh, and in that way, they avoid a conviction, avoid having to bond out. But but it also saves the county money. And, and so mm -hmm. in, in a year and a half or so that we've been in operation, 3,500 people have avoided being arrested for nonviolent offenses. That's uh, largely possession of marijuana cases, misdemeanor marijuana cases, that they would have come to court and gotten some sort of probation anyway. Uh, a lot mm -hmm. of them would have gotten deferred adjudication, which is the kind of probation that doesn't result in a conviction. So why, why waste all that time and money to give them upfront what they would have ultimately gotten at the, at the end, the back end, right? Mm -hmm. And so because of that, uh, 3,500 people have avoided being arrested, but that has also translated to, into huge savings for the county because as a result of that, the, the county has saved $1.8 million in booking costs in processing those individuals. That's all. Uh, when That's you add up, you're talking about over $2 million saved in just that time. So because we've had such a huge success, uh, we approached a, a local representative, Ina Minjares, was good enough to carry our flag and is going to go to the legislature uh, proposing to expand those offenses to now what are called state jail felony offenses, drug offenses we're talking about. Uh, again, it still gives the officer the discretion to 
have the decision to arrest those people. If he or she believes that person should be arrested, then they can do that. We can then decide whether or not to accept that case. But it gives the officer another tool in his tool belt. And so that's what this this expansion does. It, it proposes to potentially um, cite that individual for possession of controlled substances uh, of a of a uh, less than a gram amount. And if you can think of, of, if you have, a lot of people have packets of sweet and low at home. Mm-hmm. If, if you look at a packet, that's about a gram. Mm-hmm. Uh, think about, uh, you know, and if you hit it, you know, and you get down to, the, there's not a whole bunch in that little packet that you put uh, mm-hmm. in your drink. That's what we're talking about uh, is less than that. Uh, or, or yeah, under, under a gram or less than a gram is the amount that we're talking about. Uh, if the officer makes a decision, if that uh, uh, proposal, uh, the proposed bill becomes uh, law, then the officers have the discretion to cite that individual. Well, I want to thank you for being here today and for for sharing what's you know your new path and all that you you're doing to to make change. You know, as we as we celebrate Black History Month. I think I couldn't think of a better way to uh, open Black History Month. Well, thank you. And happy Black History Month to you. Thank you. (laughs) You too. All right. And you've been listening to On the Record with Tiffany. And we will be back next week. And we'll be talking some more about Black history and our beautiful city and what's going on in San Antonio. Remember, we're more alike than we are different. You've been enjoying On the Record with Tiffany. We encourage you to share these stories with friends and family. You can listen to other shows by going to 930amtheanswer.com. And join us next week for On the Record with Tiffany on 930am The Answer.